It was just Armory Week in New York City. Usually that's a traditional sign of spring. This year we weren't so lucky. A major snowstorm took place in the middle of the fair, wreaking havoc for visitors and exhibitors alike. There was even an accident at LaGuardia with a plane sliding off the runway that shut a major domestic airport during the middle of the week. A few days after, Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips all held very successful mid-season sales. I sat down with the master, Judd Tully, to talk about the week. Judd, there's a lot to cover, but is there any one thing that uh, stood out from the week? I guess, in a funny way, the weather played a huge factor in the week. I mean, you couldn't imagine a worse scenario, you know, the plane skidding almost into the uh, bay at LaGuardia on Thursday. I mean, in terms of setting up on these art fairs and, you know, you get everything, you get the work there, and then the curators can't land, uh, your collector you're waiting for. I mean, I'm speculating a bit, but I did hear a lot of you know, that kind of luck of the draw from dealers just saying... Saying they were frustrated? Oh, yeah, because there, there were literally, I mean, during the week, during the prime time of the openings where you would expect all these people, there were just multiple flight cancellations across the country. I don't even know about Europe, but even American curators and several dealers specifically kind of, you know, they just were really disappointed that they weren't going to see whoever coming in. I can only imagine their frustration. I know people who were in hotels in Midtown who wouldn't venture through the snowstorm to get to the piers and forget coming in from the airport. In good weather, it's hard to get there. <laughs> you know, unless you're coming in by helicopter or something. But, you know, that said, I would say the armory, um, you know, this time around, I would say they did pretty well in both, um, you know, the Armory, I think of any of the art fairs, they are face the vulnerability of just the pressure of so many fairs. And coming um, as they do, or as it does, um, in this new, uh, lineup of, you know, there's TAFAF, which is a completely other thing in Europe, but then now there's Art Basel Hong Kong, and then you've got, so it's sort of, they're struggling a bit in terms of just the timing, and they did have some um, dealers that came back after a number of years, and I think they are building, and I think Noah Horowitz is doing a good job in that sense of tightening the lineup. There are fewer, you know, by 20 or so galleries, uh, almost 200 galleries they have all together in both peers and in terms of alternative curated exhibitions, bringing this, you know, guy from the Whitechapel Gallery to do a special installation curatorial treatment of Middle Eastern artists, uh, you know, that's all good. Given how many fairs there are around the world in March, it certainly seemed that there were many galleries at the Armory 
who were also possibly at uh, ARCO, who will maybe have a booth in TFAF or at Art Basel in Hong Kong, all in the same month. And it felt as though many of the booths may have lacked stock, uh, a new supply of works that weren't um, being carted all over the world. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and I, I spoke to um, one dealer, a very seasoned dealer who was, I mean, it was almost, I wouldn't say she was in tears. I mean, that's exaggerating. But she was just saying that um, facing the weak armory, OK. And then also showing over at ADAA, and then the prospect of, am I going to Maastricht, or who's going to be manning the stand in Hong Kong? Plus, where do I get all this material? And I think it's a good point that you make in terms of now, given the you know, bubbly nature overall of the market, especially in the art fair auction um, you know, landscape, it's not so much the demand isn't there, but just the manpower to deliver enough good work to satisfy the demand and deliver it uh, around the world maybe not there. No, I, I think I agree. And interestingly, which I didn't realize, um, someone told me that especially Art Basel Hong Kong apparently sent out like a letter or a notice that they did not want to see material that had been shown at other fairs in the last, you know, circuit. And I don't know how they would exactly be able to monitor that. Well, I know how they do it because I saw Mark Spiegler, the director of Art Basel, standing at the entrance of the Armory Fair uh, moments after it opened. And, you know, these days with everyone taking pictures of all of the art, you don't even actually have to show up to keep an eye on what's being shown at many of the most prominent booths. No, and, and also not to mention the sale, the pre-sales that go on and these kind of packages, email blasts that collectors or just about anybody gets ahead of the fair. But I thought one, um, and it was really just a, a snafu that occurred, but just again the irony of it, that at the piers during the VIP opening, there's an interior stairway that leads from 94 to 92. And the fire department or closed it down because someone didn't get the permit for the staircase. As a result, the modern fare was practically empty. That's a shame because the modern pier is generally the biggest draw, certainly where some of the best work is shown and sold. Yeah. And I think there were, I mean, even with that, I think quite a few galleries did quite well. And the ones that have stuck it out are learning this one gallery, which always brings incredible material from, um, they're from Bologna, um, Gallery Arte Maggiore. Um, and usually it's like they bring uh, uh, Giorgio Morandi, who's from Bologna, and there's a museum there. And, but that kind of 
early, you know, like a watercolor from, but what they're doing now, and this is, I think, a learning curve for them. Now they're bringing uh, Artipovera works, works from the 1960s. I, found, I mean, not to overwhelm the booth, but to kind of, they're getting it that people have this taste that can, you know, they don't have to have the uh, De Chirico from 1952. Now it's not just De Chirico or Morandi. You've got a, a large number of Italian artists that people are falling over themselves to get at. Yeah, and this other, this uh, uh, Torino, I think it's Turin, um, Mazzolino, I think that's it. I think that's how you say it. But they have, you know, these Bonalumi um, works that are um, lesser known but getting better known in the United States. I don't know if you saw the uh, Axel Vervoort uh, booth, but there the connection was made between those Italians um, and the Gutai movement. He had a alcove that had an El Alnitsui on one wall, a Shiraga on the other, and then a, a third painting that looked like a Castellani, and anyone would have mistaken it uh, for one of those Italians, but it turned out it was a Gutai artist, and that sort of brought the whole um, global theme together. Literally, I mean, counting back to maybe five years ago, Chiraga in the American market, I mean, Gutai, it was kind of nowhere. I mean, invisible. And you mentioned Bevert. Um, he showed a Chiraga painting at Maastricht. I think it was two years ago, maybe three, probably two years ago. And it, someone bought it. It kind of caused a stir. And it seems almost like from that little seed, it just kind of, plus, uh, a prominent American collector, Howard Rashovsky from Dallas, he got on to, with, and Alan Schwartzman has been his art advisor for years, and they got onto that whole plane, that Gutai plane, before it sort of, you know, Fergus McCaffrey, another uh, dealer who's been active in that area, before, you know, Mnuchin, before Dominique Levy, had they have shows going on right now in New York. It's it's I mean it's it's amazing. I don't know if you noticed, but there was a Chiraga in Sotheby's contemporary curated sale during the same week, and when it was first put on the block, it was bought in. Later that same sale, they brought the lot back and sold it for the low estimate, I believe, somewhere around $1.8 million, which just suggests the consigner had a fair bit of leverage and wasn't willing to make a deal. And so... Yeah, I mean, and it does make sense because it was, I mean, it is a significant movement, people say. I mean, it's... It's, it, and Japan has been in such a, uh, a backwater, in a sense, because it was just sitting there for decades, and these artists or their widows or, you know, just didn't have the market. So it's kind of interesting. 
It'll be very interesting to see if that has a knock-on effect for other abstract painters or movements that haven't really had their moment in the sun. I know the there's been talk about Manoha making some sort of a revival, and Liu Fan, who is a Korean artist but was associated with Manoha, had a retrospective at the Guggenheim several years ago. It didn't really make his market take off, certainly not the way Shiraga's had. Right. I mean, you could, I mean, it, it's, it's visible, but all of these post-war works, whether it's Italian, um, whether it's Japanese, Brazilian art, again, in that that's lesser known or lesser mined or lesser picked over, you can just almost imagine they're trying to find, you know, the next big thing. And, or, in, you know, that just sort of adds to, because I think the belief now is, and it seems to be, uh, you know, there's ample evidence that if, if collectors or, you know, are shown something new, and there's a convincing story behind it, they will. That just goes back to the fact that there's more demand than there is supply. And a dealer who can tell a very good story about an artist has enough material and can convince a buyer that it's not just individual taste, that others are responding and buying these wor works, can really make a market out of a, an old artist who just hasn't been seen for a while. That certainly seems to be Mnuchin's role in all of this, is giving Shiraga the, the abstract expressionist bona fides that would allow people to buy him and own him next to the bigger uh, American names. I mean, one thing, another thing that um, struck me, and I was, because usually at art fairs, you know, you see a collector or someone and, you know, they're with an art advisor if they have one, or you don't usually have that kind of one-on-one -on -one, um, interaction. Yeah. But I happened to run into this guy, um, Alan Capel, at the um, armory in the uh, modern section. And he's actually also a dealer. He's, had a, he's from Chicago. But he was a massive art collector in the 1980s of all the, you know, Neo-expressionist, he was, I think, a commodities trader, but a guy who's collected basically from, you know, college days. And he was talking, and he had just bought this um, Richard Hamilton multiple, yeah, of the Laughing Critic, which is, I had seen... Which is a set of chattering teeth on like a... Like an electric toothbrush. toothbrush. And the, ama the amazing thing that Hamilton actually, it was like a... It's a product that he manufactured. He got all these different you know, places that could do this kind of work, make this thing, and packaged it in this beautiful mirrored box. And it was an edition of 50, but most of them were destroyed. This is all coming, the information is like from uh, Koppel that um, most of the pieces were ruined because the batteries in the toothbrush part would eventually just leak or corrode and then destroy the piece. So very few of them work. And this one was a pristine example. With the box? Yeah, everything, yeah. 
you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't a major, it was like, I think it was $60,000 at uh, Christia. Yes, Hamilton recently had that big sale uh, in London of a piece from the 80s, but really an image from the 60s that was also a multiple and did extremely well, I think surprised a lot of people, even with that Tate show in London that got a lot of people excited that uh, Hamilton was this, uh, you know, major pop figure who hadn't really uh, been rediscovered and whose market really needs some sort of a, a big major sale to let everyone sit up and take notice. Yeah, and I think it, 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 it's the, um, uh, the timing or, I mean, that Tate show you mentioned, this piece, The Laughing Critic, was a version was in, in that show as well. And in fact, there's a show um, about a um, the show. London, the Pace show, Robert Fraser. Robert Fraser, and that famous, I mean, I bought um, uh, postcards at, you know, at uh, the Serpentine Gallery or whatever in London of that famous paparazzi photograph of Mick Jagger and Fra I never who knew who Robert Fraser was at the time, but a guy in like another pastel suit in the back of this cop car, handcuffed, and Hamilton had done um, a uh, multiple of it. I mean, it's just like you know that that is like a quintessential moment of the '60s of just the whole you know pop culture. Along different lines of pop, there also seemed to be a lot of. Alex Katz works dotted around the armory, um, almost suggesting that there's more activity going on in his market than maybe we realize. And when it was at lower price points, it would be something like there would be Warhols in every stand. But I, I know, and because um, Ropak um, always has Alex Katz, I mean, but as you say, lesser works. But he's someone who's, you know, he's an octogenarian, living artist, still making work, and has been a worker for, I don't know, 50 years, steadily making paintings, works of every imaginable size. So let's switch gears for a second. We haven't talked about the other big fair at the Armory, the Armory on Park Avenue. Um, you know, it, it's... It's interesting that, um, I mean, that fair now, which is, I don't know, how many, 25 years at least, they started, I think, in the late 80s, the Art Dealers Association of America, or the American Association of Art Dealers. I never know which. ADAA. <laughs> in any event, when they started, they created that fair as a response to what the auctions were doing to the art market. They were take, you know, they were losing out to the auctions, and this was their way of kind of saying, "Hey, you know, check this out." And I think over the years, you know, it's but now it's relatively, it's kind of petite, and it almost doesn't feel like an art fair when you go to it. It feels like some other it's pleasant, and there's some really good things, um, but it's not a particularly dynamic feeling. It's a funny 
fair because it's um, you know it's in the right zip code. It's in this you know classic building. It's perfectly easy to get to. Um, but I, I think they have a hard time. I mean, they the association of just again with all this competition going on with these other fairs and with the major dealers uh, like like Christoph Vandeweg and had a he had a very large um, collaborative painting between Warhol and Basquiat and another large um, Basquiat work um, text-driven work and one of the um, really nasty of those um, Warhol um, transvestite paintings. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen series, thank you. Um, you know, pretty good, you know, pretty good. And he's, you know, about... But why is he there? I mean, he has a gallery a few blocks away. But I think, but I think that very point about, again, which goes back to the fairs, is that, you know, can you afford to skip one? You know, where you're going to, you know, you don't want to miss whoever coming in, even if you've got your, you know, sources and radar and connections out there, you're kind of living in, in a kind of market fear that you're going to miss something. Or miss someone, miss that new collector who's wandering around trying to learn about the market who may have more than enough money to spend on anything in your booth. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it still strikes me as strange that even in New York, and maybe this is again, maybe a Van de Weg kind of point of where you have dealers that have brick and mortar places blocks away are still going into the fairs. And I think what that translates into is that collectors are not necessarily going to galleries anymore. And maybe we won't call them collectors, or we could just say buyers. buyers. And um, that is a real conundrum for the dealers who, you know, maybe they can't afford to do an art fair, or they can't afford to do five or 12. Or they can't afford to put on that really spectacular gallery show that draws. The one thing I think that's pretty obvious is that whatever drama used to go along with art fairs, I mean, is definitely over. I mean, it is a kind of, oh yes, this is a week of art fairs and, um, you know, this sold for X or, you know, but it's not exciting and it's not the you know, the, the running of the bulls when the, you know, VIP section opens or, or even that battle of the reserves you know you you can have this on hold until five o'clock and then i sell it to you know the next person uh kind of so, i guess one other thing too i just mentioned about the contemporary side of the of the peer show um is that the price points do seem to be lower and you know and so even when there is activity it's another it's that Five thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand, maybe sweet spot, and some pieces going for, you know, maybe towards um, mid six figures. But it's also a different, 
market in that sense and younger on that contemporary side. But yeah, like, I mean, for me, in terms of Artris, I mean, it's, this is nothing new. You know, the thrill is gone. Judd, you've probably forgotten more art fairs than most people will ever attend. But I get your point. I mean, this is, this is just sort of run-of-the-mill regular business. Yeah, I, I guess, again, the bottom line is that the galleries, you know, the art fair is their essential lifeline to, you know, staying in business. And let's hope they all do for a long time. Judd, thank you so much for taking the time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you.